0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit DiscoveryBristol.com. If you, like me, uh, remember way back in the day, we had some different children's programs, and for me, a lot of what I have learned in life, even as an adult, came from the children's program Sesame Street. Anybody else fans? Graduates of the street, right? Uh, I know when I was growing up, like the '90s, like it wasn't like it is today, where like the episode you're watching is the most recent episode, right? Like it's the new season of Sesame Street or whatever. Felt like we were still watching Sesame Street from the '70s when I was a kid in the '90s. I don't know if anybody else like remembers that. And the Sesame Street was a different place in the '70s, right? Like if you've seen those old shows, you know, like Sesame Street, itself, it was like dirty. Like there'd be like litter like hanging around and stuff because they wanted it to look like a place a kid might grow up at. But then there's also just random monsters, like never explained why this one street we assume in America has a giant bird, right? And I don't know, like they're, is they're thinking like, well, we want to teach children, like how to count, how to read, this kind of stuff. Like let's use monsters and giant birds, like to achieve this on a normal road. Like this was their idea, but I loved it. I love the idea of Sesame Street, just the, like the, the funny parts of it. I enjoyed it. And there was one one in particular that has stuck with me and I think helped me very much in life, and it was a game that they would always play on Sesame Street called, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. You guys remember the game, and there was kind of a song that went along with it too, like one of these things is not like the other. one of these things just stands out. I don't remember the song actually, but I remember the premise of the game. They would have somebody get up. We can have a, a, a slide up. Uh, I think I brought some pictures of it. They would have one of our Sesame Street friends show like a poster or they'd put a, a picture on the screen and they'd show three things that were the same and one thing that was different. And our job sitting at home was to yell at the TV and be like, the W, the W, it's a, it's a letter and those are numbers and you're feeling good about it, right? So we're gonna play this this morning. You, that's your sample. You know how the game works now. Let's see another one. Here's our next slide, okay? Here's our friend Cookie Monster. He's got four plates of cookies but one of them is not like the others. What's different? One of has got three cookies. Very good, children. Very good. Let's see if we can do it again. Let's see the next one. All right, here's Mr. Hooper. He's there with, with Ernie, and he's got, is that Ernie or Bert? Bert, sorry. He's there with Bert. Bert, for some reason, loves pigeons. Uh, and so Bert's got some pigeons. Which one is different? The small pigeon. Very good, good. And Bert shows us that, right? All right, here we got four different pictures. One is different. We got a bunch of people dancing and tap dancing, dressed up, which is different. One is a worm, it's squirmy, right? Oscar's friend, squirmy, very good. One of these things, not like the other. You guys get it. Now, if I were to take a picture of just four totally random strangers and put them on the screen and say, okay, one of these strangers, one of these people believes in Jesus, the others do not. Would you be able to spot the difference? Would you be able to see which is not like the others just by the picture? Chances are, probably not, right? Like probably, because we know, you can't just buy, see by a picture someone's beliefs, their internal beliefs. We'd have to see their actions, right? So if I could, by the magic of television or video, put up four different videos that showed four different people's day, like their normal day, their actions throughout the day, and if we sat the whole day, which we don't have time to do, and it'd be really bored and boring and probably weird. If we watched their whole day, would you be able to spot Who was the believer in Christ based off of watching their entire day? Then if we were to take it a step further, what if it was your day that we are all watching? Would I be able to tell your day versus three others? Could I pick you out of the crowd and see, oh yeah, that's the person who considers themselves a Christian and you can't use a Sunday. Sorry, you can't, you got to use a normal weekday. That is where we're at in Ephesians 5. Is in Ephesians 5, Paul talks to us about the importance of looking different, of standing out from those who are around us. And I wanted to bring Noah up and just read us that entire passage because there's so much in this. It's very rich. And I'm gonna sort of pick it apart and skip some places and go out of order. And so I wanna look at this. So Paul is talking about the importance of us being different from those around us. So first we have to ask the question, well, who should we stand out from? And in verse 6 Paul says this, he says, "'Let no one deceive you with empty words, "'for because of these things "'the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience.'" So this is who Paul is talking about. He's saying the sons of disobedience, those are the ones that Christians should look different from. And if you remember, if you go way back when we started the book of Ephesians, Matt gave us that tour through the town of Ephesus, through the city of Ephesus, which we know is a big port city. And so there's a lot of trade and commerce and money flowing through Ephesus. It was kind of an epicenter, like a a central place for worship of Roman and Greek gods. People would go to Ephesus to worship these gods. There was the temple to the goddess Artemis, really huge is like one of the wonders of the world in its time located in Ephesus. there was also like statues that were for like Greek and Roman political figures that had been built in the town and like gates named after people like Caesar or Herod and so these things existed in Ephesus. There was a big stadium where they probably had gladiator games or people were probably dying and others cheering them on as they died. We know from the book of Acts in chapter 19 there's a big cult presence in Ephesus because there are a bunch of people that when they became followers of Jesus, they brought all their books with like spells and the dark arts and stuff and threw it in a pile and they burned it all. So that was a part of Ephesus. It's like sort of dark spiritual beliefs. And then right in the middle of like the central town square, there was a giant brothel. So all of these things are present in the town of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to the Christians there and saying, do not be like the sons of disobedience. So it's clear who Paul is talking about. It is the people that are worshiping the other gods and even idolizing political figures in this area. It's the people going to the stadiums and cheering on the death. It's the people practicing like dark spiritual things. It's the people going to the brothel. These are the sons of disobedience. And Paul is saying that we should be different from them because we instead are children of light. Verse eight, he says, "'At one time you were in darkness.'" At one time you were doing all this other stuff too. You were in darkness, but now you are light and the Lord walk as children of the light. So he's saying you need to stand out from these people. And then he gives directions on what to do to stand out. And he tells us what to do and what not to do. And we're going to start with the what not to do first, which let me just get it out of the way. It's not fun, right? Like it's never fun to talk about these kind of verses where there's somebody saying like, here's a bunch of stuff you shouldn't do. And I get it too that that's not cool. Like in our culture today, talking about things that we're not, like shouldn't do, like that just doesn't exist. It's not a cool thing to talk about. But here is Paul giving us great wisdom on these things. And so we're going to look at how to stand out first by looking at what not to do. So, verse 3 of Ephesians 5, Paul says this, but sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul takes three right off the bat, three. Deeds, three particular actions and and links them all together. Later on, he's gonna talk about them again. He always keeps these three together. So I think in Paul's mind, these three things are all related, but he says these things, these actions shouldn't even be named among you. If you're a Christian, it shouldn't even be present In your life, it shouldn't even like, somebody shouldn't even be able to say like, well, I heard about this guy doing this thing. He's saying it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be named among you. And he links it together, sexual immorality, impurity, which impurity is this idea of uncleanliness too. If you remember our Old Testament laws that talk about like, if you eat this certain food, you'll become unclean. You'll be impure. So Paul's linking that together with sexual immorality. That would make us impure in that way. And then covetousness. He's talking about greed, a desire for something that is not ours, wanting something that you're not supposed to have, which also is linked back to sexual immorality, which is impurity. So if we looked at it in in the Greek, this phrase, sexual immorality, it comes from the Greek word pornea, which you can probably guess some other words that we have that are related to that word. But this word here in the New Testament, anytime you see sexual immorality, it's almost always that word translated from the Greek. And guys like Paul, who are well studied in Hebrew, who would have been like rabbis or Pharisees, like the experts in the Hebrew law, when they would use this phrase of sexual immorality, most likely what they're thinking of, what they're referring to, is back in the Old Testament law, all the way back in Leviticus, when God is giving Moses all the laws that the nation of Israel should follow now that they're becoming a nation released from slavery. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 21, there's this whole list of things that are sexual acts that God is saying, you shouldn't be doing this. And we're gonna keep it very G-rated this morning because I know there's a lot of different ages in here. So I'm not even putting those verses up on the screen, but if you were to look that up in Leviticus chapter 20, you would see just a list of sexual acts that God says not to participate in. And it's basically anything that is not between a husband and a wife in a marriage. And so that is what the Bible talks about. And later on, the New Testament writers are probably referring to, and they use the, the term sexual immorality. It is all that stuff. And if you went through that list, you'd probably see some things that you'd be like, oh my goodness, like that's in the Bible? Why'd they even have to put it? I didn't even know that was a thing. But then you're also gonna see things on that list that we're very familiar with and our culture is very familiar with and you maybe have even had experiences with or a history with and they're all lumped in together, all with the same penalty, all be, to be treated in the same way and the top of the list is adultery is having a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. All of those things together, then the New Testament writers refer to as sexual immorality. So we can look at this, and I I think you should, this is a good question to ask, and say like, well, isn't that the Old Testament law? You know, doesn't that go the way of like not eating pork? You know, we eat bacon now, so why should we follow these laws? That's a great question. When they're talking about cleanliness and uncleanliness, how do we apply that to us who have been on the other side of the cross, who've been made clean by Jesus's forgiveness? Well, Jesus himself talks about that in Matthew when he's having a discussion with some Pharisees. And they're talking about washing hands of all things, which for the Jews, again, there's this idea of if you eat with dirty hands, you become unclean. And so they're talking to Jesus about this in Matthew 15, 19, and he says, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, witness, slander, these are what defile a person. These actions are the things that make you dirty, not eating with dirty hands. And so right there, Jesus says, sexual immorality is included in this idea of this is what will make us impure. Not Not our actions on the outside, but on the inside. He says, it's not what you say and do, it's what you believe. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Later on, we see the apostles in Acts chapter 15. Stick with me. I know I'm giving you a big old church history lesson. Acts chapter 15, the apostles, the disciples that walk with Jesus, they have this big council, and they're talking about what should we continue to do that was a part of the Jewish religion now that we have this new religion of Christianity? What laws should we continue? Do we continue like the clean, the unclean thing? Do we continue not eating pork, not eating these certain things? What do we keep up? And they all agreed one of the things we keep up from the Old Testament is that we abstain from sexual immorality. And they probably base it off of teachings like Jesus' that we just looked at. And then every book of the New Testament, every book of the New Testament mentions in some way abstaining from sexual immorality, from not participating in the sins that are included in that chapter of Leviticus 20. And so when Paul says to the Ephesians... You've got to stand out. He says, don't do this stuff because your culture is doing this. Your culture is all into these kinds of things and you should look different from them. Don't participate in these things. And then he goes on to say something very difficult. In verse five of Ephesians five, Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, again, that's those three, is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So you look at this and it seems very harsh because as we read that, we hear Paul saying, anybody who does these three things, they have no inheritance In God's eternal kingdom. Does that mean people who do this, they can't become Christians? Or if I mess up and do this, that I'm not a Christian? I think the key here is in the word inheritance. Remember, he says, let no one deceive you, or I'm sorry, it's before that, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Which Paul, talking about our inheritance, this isn't the first time he does it. If we went all the way back to Ephesians chapter one, Paul talks about our inheritance there, talking about Christians. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth from the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So in chapter one, Paul says, if you've heard the good news, if you've heard that Jesus is the son of God, that he gave up his life for us, and then you gave up your sins and your life to him, then you are sealed, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. You're in the kingdom. You have an inheritance from your father. That is eternity promised to us. And if you follow Jesus, you have that. So is that in contradiction to what Paul says in chapter five of that anybody who does these things, they have no inheritance. Well, which is it? We're told our inheritance has been guaranteed. So I think there's another key word we can look at here and it comes in that parentheses back in chapter, um, in verse six of Ephesians five, or verse five. It says, you be sure of this, anyone sexually immoral or impure who is, or who is covetous, parentheses, that is an idolater, Remember, as Paul's linked these three together, he starts comparing them to idolatry, saying that greed, it's like you're worshiping something else that you're not supposed to have. That, that, that's covetousness, is a little bit of idolatry. Sexual immorality, it's when you worship these things, and you put those things ahead of who you're really supposed to be worshiping. That's when it becomes idolatry, and people who are doing that have no inheritance and the kingdom of heaven, because someone who's putting something else, a sinful act, before Jesus, they're not showing humility or repentance from that act, right? Which we know to be step one of salvation, to admit our sins, admit that we need someone to come and die for us and pay our penalty. And if we're not doing that, but instead we're idolizing what Paul says is sinful behavior, then it's hard to also have a relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't think what Paul is talking about here is when we struggle against these things, I don't think, because we hear Paul talking about his own struggle in Romans 7, where he says, the thing that I wanna do, I don't do. But the thing that I don't wanna do, I continue doing that thing. And so this is at work at me, where it's like I'm torn apart because I have these sins and these struggles that I'm fighting, but I keep messing up. Paul wouldn't say that he has no inheritance. Paul is saying that he has a struggle. So there's a difference here that he brings up, which is, I think, a celebration of sin, like we would see the city of Ephesus doing, versus the struggle of sin. And he's saying people who are celebrating sin and not recognizing where they fall short, they aren't gonna have an inheritance because they haven't given their life to Jesus. But you, even though you may struggle, you've been guaranteed, you have been sealed. There's another place where Paul uses language like this to another church to help us understand it more. And it's in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He's writing to the Christians in Corinth and he says, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he doesn't stop there though. Get this part. He says, and such were some of you. He's saying the people I'm writing to, the Christians I'm writing to, this is who you were. You were the sons of disobedience. He says, as such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. So there is an idea that if we have given up our sinful past, even though we may struggle to it, we may still fall to it sometimes, that we've been sanctified. We've been washed. We are sealed and guaranteed. We have an inheritance in Jesus. And so again, Paul says, Don't be fooled by this, though. Ephesians 5, 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He's saying, don't let anybody tell you that the sinful things aren't sinful. We have the word of God, Jesus himself speaking it. So those are the actions of the sons of disobedience. But you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, however, you are children of light which reminds me of words we read in the book of John. A lot of times at Christmas time, that first chapter of John, where it tells us the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus, he, came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We are children of light, the light that came into a world of darkness and gave us life. And as children of light, it's not befitting for us to participate in the actions of the sons of disobedience. It's not befitting for us to worship and celebrate those things, but instead we've got to fight against those things, our own personal struggle. We have to fight against sin in our lives. And if you're looking at this and you're like, oh, well, easy, like I got that one covered. Like, well, Paul doesn't leave it just there. He goes into things that you might find a little more difficult when we get to verses 4, 11, and 17 and 18. Paul also tells us on top of all the sexual immorality and impurity and that stuff, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead there should be thanksgiving. And Paul doesn't say where. He doesn't say like, unless you're in the locker room or unless you you know, you know really mess up on the golf course or drop this hammer on your toe. He says, let there be no foolish talk, no crude joking. It's out of place for a follower of Christ. Then he says, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Then he says, therefore do not be foolish. This is where I get my toes stepped on, right? Because I do a lot of foolish things. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, and be filled with the Spirit. Paul covers it all. There's very little that he leaves out. And he's saying, we need to stay away from this stuff because we're children of light. It'll make us look different than those around us so that we can shine light to those around us. And so he says, therefore, do not become partners with them, the sons of disobedience. For at one time, you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so he takes all of this idea and lumps it under the the heading of this passage of Ephesians 5, 1, which says, be imitators of God. An imitator of God is not gonna participate in the things of the children of disobedience. Instead, an imitator of God is not gonna do that stuff. So it says, be imitators of God. It's like we get a new uniform. Remember, all of this comes after what he said last week that we looked at of take off the old self and put on the new. Remember how Matt had two different jackets to show like we're a new thing now. We're taking off the old, we're putting on the new. It's like we, when we become a Christian, we become a a son of light, one of the children of light versus the sons of disobedience. It's like you get a new uniform, right? Like think of it in that way. And so you've got a new job. So your new job means a new uniform. If I am a lifeguard, I'm not gonna show up to the pool one day dressed as a fireman, right? Both save lives, but the uniform of a fireman and a lifeguard are very different. If I'm up on the like, lifeguard stand wearing like, the big boots and the jacket and like, the oxygen tank and the helmet, as soon as somebody like, is struggling in the water, I'm gonna jump in the deep end and I'm not coming back up, right? Because I'm weighted down by all that gear. I wore the wrong uniform to work that day. The same is true if I were a fireman. I'm not gonna show up in the swim trunks, sunglasses like twirling a whistle to a burning building. And what, I just blow the whistle? That's not gonna help anybody. I'm not wearing the right uniform. So now that we've given our lives to Jesus, we get a new uniform to put on. The old self is gone, the new has come, and that uniform is determined by being imitators of God as dearly loved children, as beloved children. We're imitating our father. He's our dad, we should look like him. This is something in our house we try and talk a lot about with our kids, and early on we started this idea of, hey, we are different Our family is different because we've decided to follow Jesus. So we're gonna look a lot different from those around us who aren't following Jesus. And the hopes for this is just to let our kids know, like this is why we're making the choices we make. This is why we're not gonna watch that show on TV. This is why we might not participate in that activity is because we're children of the light. We're trying to live differently. We're trying to follow Jesus. And my hope is that there will never be a moment when one of my kids can come home and be like, Dad, when do I get a cell phone? So-and-so already has a cell phone. Because they know I'm going to say, well, we are different, aren't we? Or Dad, like, can't I do this thing? Like, who knows what it might be in high school? Like, can't I go to this after-prom party and stay the night here? No. And they're like, but but so and so is doing it. We're different, okay? Like, I'm hoping they will just know before they even get to those ideas that our family is different because we've decided to follow Jesus. And we're trying to look like Jesus. We're trying to be imitators of God. So we're left with the question, how do we do that? And I wish I could break this into like a part two of the sermon and use as much time talking about the how do we do that, then how do we we look like Jesus rather than what we don't do? I don't have that time. But first right here, we're told be imitators of God. Well, how do we imitate God? I mean, he's omniscient, right? Like he's not a part of our realm. He's forever, how do I do those things? Well, he sent his son to us so that we could see God in the flesh on our earth. So if you wanna know what God would do interacting with a sinner, watch Jesus interact with the adulterous woman. You wanna know how God would interact with somebody greedy and obsessed with wealth, watch how Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus. You wanna see how God would interact with poor people, watch how Jesus interacted with poor people and imitate that. Be imitators of God by watching the son. And then Paul tells us that we also have to watch our walk. So we watch the sun, but then we watch how we walk, how we act, how we live. Ephesians 5.15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So people not following Jesus are gonna see us because we're walking in wisdom, not just based off of what I choose not to do, but how I choose to live. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of the light. So we walk in light, not in darkness. Ephesians 5, two, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul puts this in here like right at the top, be imitators of God and walk in love. Because I think we run the risk of a me versus them, right? We'd run the risk of reading these words from Paul and being like, yeah, boo, sons of disobedience. We're the children of light. Paul's saying, remember to love them. Walk in love. Even though they're doing things that we know is not best for them, that we're choosing not to do, we still love them. Why? Because we were them. We were doing these things before Jesus got a hold of us because we have the same struggles as them. We're just choosing to fight them rather than to celebrate them. So we must love And how did Jesus love as we imitate him? He spread out his arms on the cross and died for the things we did against him, died for the things that we did that God said not to do, paying a price for us. That's how we love. And hopefully through all of that, then people are gonna see that we are children of light, walking in a dark world, reflecting God's light in the darkness around us so that more people walking in darkness, walking in disparity, walking without hope can see us, what we choose not to do and what we choose to do and realize there's something more in the light that we can show them the way to our Father as we imitate Him and His Son. All of this, Jesus' great love, this idea of old and new has played out for us so well this morning and two things that we get to do right now, and that is communion and celebrate a baptism. That's right, second service. I know we get a lot of people dunked in first service. Well, today is your chance. You get to see one live, not on video, second service. We got a real life baptism this morning, and we're gonna celebrate it with communion. So the ushers are gonna come around in a minute. We'll show you the baptism video, and the ushers will pass out communion during that video. And remember that communion is the representation for us of the light of what Jesus did to grab us out of darkness. His body broken on the cross, his blood poured out, and together we come and we eat this in remembrance of that sacrifice that rescued us from the darkness. Then in baptism, we see the old life going away and the new emerging. It's just like a burial, right? Like we got the water, it's almost like burying somebody, but then crazy thing happens, they come back to life just as Jesus exited his grave. We're gonna see Layla this morning exiting hers. As she's given her life to Jesus, said, I wanna be a child of the light. We see the old, the darkness being washed away. And we see the new emerging, the light emerging. We see the old self go away in the water and the new self comes up. That is what's represented for us in the act of baptism. And so this morning, we get to hear a cool story that happened at camp this summer, where Layla, one of our, our, our students, middle school student, where Layla gave her life to Jesus. And so this morning is an enactment of what she did. She's gonna be baptized. And then after that, we're gonna take communion together with Layla showing what Jesus has done for all of us so that we can be in the light instead of the darkness. So, the video is going to play, you're going to get communion, and Layla's going to come forward.
1: Hi, my name is Layla. i here, 13 years old, and I go to Clay Spring Hill School. I um First realized that I wanted to be baptized whenever I went on a church trip with my friends to Fuge. Um, when they were playing songs it really like spoke to me and really made me realize um, that I wanted to get baptized. They basically um, said everybody that you that if you wanted to get baptized or that you really like learn something or whatever it was to come up and go ring the bell. I was really nervous too because I get like really bad anxiety and I probably would have had like a mental breakdown on the stage so um, I just didn't do that but then I told Kaylee hey I wanted to go up there and I do want to be baptized but I I didn't Um, She helped me with that on the bus ride home so I just feel really close to God and I really believe in him, and I really want to spend the rest of my life for the rest of eternity in heaven with him, so I really just I, that why I want to get that person. I'm really grateful towards my mom because she's helped me through um, a lot of things in my life, and um, really appreciate her, and I think that the main reason that I Getting baptized is because she has brought me into uh, this church. She has brought me here, and now I'm I'm a part of this community, and I'm really glad to be here.
0: If I could just broaden that story a little bit, we are. I'm driving the bus back from camp, and Kaylee like taps me on the shoulder and says, "Turn down the radio." which never happens on a youth trip, right? Like it's usually turn that song louder. And then Kaylee gets everybody's attention and tells us on the bus what Layla just talked about, that Layla had given her life to Jesus. So I'm like trying to drive and hearing all this stuff. And then next thing I know, I look in the rear view and all the kids have grabbed Layla. They've all like reached out and they're laying on hands on Layla and praying and thanking God for her commitment to him and celebrating this process with her. So that was just an incredible moment that I will always keep that picture in my head um, of everyone surrounding Layla, the new, a new sister in Christ. So Layla, we're excited for you this morning. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you, have you given your life and your sins over to Him? Yes. Then it is my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.